Hello everyone, welcome to the James English Show with me, James English. Today's episode is uh, brought to you by Ultraviolet Light and uh, I'm very happy to say that today I'm going to be talking to uh, General Ratko Maladic uh, who will be joining us from the Hague War Crimes Tribunal because why not hear the other side of the story from the absolute worst person that you can imagine. I'm only pretending my guests here, some of them don't understand, they don't have context for why I said what I just said, but that's absolutely fine. There's a lot of trust in the room. Welcome to Dara McGarvey's Common People with me, Darzo McGarvey, and it gives me great pleasure uh, to bring you our inaugural In Conversation episode, where I am joined by three esteemed guests who are all leading the field in their own occupations. And today we're going to have a discussion about an hour or so in length looking at some of their work and then hoping that that discussion kind of break into a general chat about some of the themes that you can expect on uh, Common People. So in the room today we have a filmmaker, artist and teacher Lisa Selby. Uh, we have filmmaker Rebecca Lloyd Evans. We'll be talking about their new film uh, Blue Bag Life, which I attended a screening of at the Glasgow Film Theatre last night and it absolutely blew my mind. And we're also joined by Gavin Bruce, who is an academic at Glasgow Caledonian University and he was recently uh, became publicly noted for uh, a bit of media controversy around some research that he's undertaken that's exploring aspects of working class youth culture. So I'm looking forward to getting into a discussion uh, with everyone here about the various things that you're up to and maybe well, well there's a chance to cross pollinate some of the chat, that would be great. But first of all, just to say, good morning, how are you all? Morning. Good, good morning. So it's a bit weird then, it's like who talks first? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So um, the the uh, last night we we uh, we met for the first time actually just under the clock at Glasgow Central. You got off the train, and the first thing you said to me was you you let me know that you needed to go for coffee, and you you made a point of clarifying that you wanted normal milk, and this was for me. Uh, a kind of red flag for me that these are my people. This was an ultimate comfort for me <laughs> that you needed coffee immediately as if you weren't already caffeinated enough, but also the, the, the caveat that it had to be normal milk. I think we needed a chance to, I was feeling quite nervous about meeting you. Um, and I just wanted a moment to be able to sit down and kind of connect. Makes sense. Um, why were you nervous? Well, I read Poverty Safari some time ago and it had a massive impact on me. Um, you spoke about Grenfell and in the wake of Grenfell, how there was a lot of media interest suddenly in people in high rises. And I knew that I was one of those media people that had made a series for Radio 4 called High Rise, which was after Grenfell going and meeting people that lived in high rises. And so like you held up a mirror, very uncomfortable mirror to myself. And, you know, I really admire your work. I learn a lot from you. And so it's like I'm there was a sort of element of shame, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that's not often the emotion I'm trying to elicit with my work, but I think it's very honest of you to to, to say that, and I get that from uh, middle class professionals a lot. Uh, I think there's a there's a perception of me. I'm just going to actually maybe jump you in the street because <laughs> I'm just so furious and angry about class inequality. So uh, I'm glad to allay some of those fears. Now, what I want to get straight into is the the screening of the documentary last night, uh, Blue Bag Life, Lisa. Um, this process of documenting uh, your life, how it's been touched by addiction, uh, it began really kind of 
on the hoof where you had no idea it would become a film. You were documenting things using mainly a camera on a phone. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, on my phone. And can you just talk me through, like, uh, why you began that process and then at what point you started to realise, hang on, maybe this is actually about something else? Just started filming because a lot of things were going on at the time and I couldn't just sit and write notes to get all the information down. Um, so it was a way of note-taking that felt easy and immediate. Um, also, I wanted to keep people with me for longer. Um, if you've got someone in addiction, uh, they're, you're very present and they're somewhere else and you're just away. And when someone's in prison, my partner was in prison, uh, my mum was in addiction and away, um, I just wanted to keep them somehow and and also to process information on my own, zoom in later and, and catch things that I might not have seen. Um, I remember taking a lot of photos in my mum's house after her death um, of paraphernalia and things I didn't know were paraphernalia yet. Um, I remember seeing a Kinder egg with blood on it and phone, and my partner phoned me from prison and I said, I just don't understand why this has got blood on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, just for to give some context to to listeners and and viewers, um, the 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 film uh, charts your attempt to reconcile the loss of a maternal figure in your life. It begins with a monologue from you talking about the word mother itself, and this immediately pulled me in because. I've often struggled with that myself in terms of I have no concept of a mother figure in my life. I, I, would, I, I envied your ability to sit down with Helen, you call her in the film, because at that point you're not reconciled to even calling her your mother. And so the, the, the documentary shifts between kind of the present day and in, in the, in the context of the film to, to looking at aspects of the past, documenting the history of your mother, your own relationships, and really seeing these echoes of generational trauma and, and, and addiction playing out in different ways, but very artfully and tastefully captured. Um, and you can imagine uh, if you had got a, like a maybe a BBC or STV documentary filmmaker in to do it, they could have composed the frames all the same way, but it wouldn't have had the same resonance. There's something about every frame that you capture in it, the reality of it. Um, can you just talk me and the listeners through a little bit the history of your relationship with Helen, your mother, and, and why this was important for you to document? Yeah, um, she left me at the babysitter's house when I was 10 months old and she just never came back and I was brought up by my dad and I think she wasn't ready to be a mum I don't think she was ever ready and I just felt like this this anchor for her and she was bohemian and she wanted to party and you know the party just went on for a long time until it wasn't a party anymore and I tried to get close to her. I couldn't. I knew I couldn't ask her certain questions. Um, and I just remained distant because, uh, and polite, because I didn't want her to feel any more guilt than she may already feel because she wasn't like in recovery or anything like that. Um, so I couldn't approach her. Um, I just had to be someone that watched. And I never filmed or take, took photographs while I was there until right at the very end when there was this interview. And then once she had died, I was able to start getting to know her, talking to people about her um, and see actually who she was. But we never really find out because and so some people say they might be a bit frustrated at not getting that answer. But then I don't have those answers either. Yeah. So Helen makes a very strong impression uh, because really, uh, what we're getting a chance to see is the complexity of the classic addict, you know, the classic street drinker, the classic noisy neighbour who's got people coming, going from their house. And, and what I loved about it, and I remember indicating this last night at the event, was every single person who is an addict it has a life and a story and tastes and a history that is just as complex uh, as, as Helen's, but we never get that insight because there's so much focus on the drug paraphernalia, uh, the, the more kind of maybe the, the tendencies towards violence or abuse and neglect, which is important, but we never get that rich, complex rendering of, of, a, of a person's entire personality and the impact that it has on everyone around them. How much 
would you say, if any, the actual process of making this film in itself was a cathartic experience for you? Well, it wasn't always cathartic. Cause, well, it's very painful. Um, but by looking at things from lots of different angles over and over again, um, and also from different mediums, photography, film, writing, um, I started to have a better understanding about educating myself. And you asked at the beginning um, about when did I know it was going to become a film. Um, well, I didn't know. Bex knew. You want to say Talk it? us through that, actually, because it, seem, it seems like this is a kind of chance meeting where, uh, you know, paths cross and then that becomes a kind of germinal creative events that lead to a, a, what I believe is a real milestone piece of work. Yeah. Our meeting definitely changed the course of my life. Um, but I followed Lisa's Instagram account called Blue Bag Life, which I highly recommend, um, which we can talk about maybe at a later point. But um, And at the time, Lisa was really actively um, talking about her partner being in prison and the sort of fucked upness of the criminal justice system. And I was gripped by Lisa. In fact, I was kind of addicted to her Instagram account. And I was making a podcast series at the time with a prison wife called Josie Cole about her experience of being like the prison family. And um, we wrote to Lisa to say, can we interview you for our podcast? And she said yes. And the meeting was, it was a profound meeting, wasn't it? We just thought it was going to be like a work interview and it was more like a meeting of hearts and minds and we just couldn't leave each other's company afterwards. And we were like, what are you doing now? Oh, nothing. What are you doing? And I was supposed to be going back to London with Josie, but the three of us went to the pub and we drank non-alcoholic beers and um, we just stayed there until closing time. And it was the beginning of just, I think, a friendship. Um where it took me some time before I had the courage to say to Lisa, I think there's a film in your life and in your work and the way that you document your life. And for people listening or watching, Lisa documented so much footage that we're talking like, you know, a basket of hard drives and SD cards. So there was so much footage to sift through. And I think that it was it was really... Uh, fortunate for you guys to work together because you have the emotional proximity to each other to becoming friends. You have a sense of this story and what its meaning and how important it is. But also, you're just far enough removed that you can dive in to all of this footage and start to look at it with just enough objectivity. And 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 I think that that makes That's for it. a beautiful collaboration. And ima imagine. Just everyone imagine handing over every your phone, your Google passwords, all everything, absolutely everything, and not censoring it and giving it to a team who then puts pictures all over. I also had two suitcases that I bought with me of boxes and objects, and and so we'd have discussions, and discussions were important in this. And I'd get I got therapy as part of the film, and so did uh, well the team were offered and, and people in the film were offered. And that's really important as well, and just before I bring bring Gavin in to talk about, about some of his work, because there are overlaps here with themes of trauma and things like that, um, but I think what I got a sense of and really what I, I, I always try to bring to all of my work, um, particularly the filmmaking side of things, is the duty of care to the subjects and the films, which is not always present in the, in the broadcasting media industry, let's be honest. And that comes through really strong in how you speak about the process of making the film, but also in every frame, because what you're getting a sense of, that there are people captured in the course of this film's runtime who don't speak, uh, who you see in the background of things, you see at a funeral, uh, who you see in a room occasionally, or they come in for a little bit and then they go. And obviously you had to get the blessing of everyone who is featured in the film in order to include them. And so I think it's a real testament to the duty of care that that has been successfully navigated to the point where everyone who's involved in the film at the time of public at the release of the film supports the film because that's a very hard thing to achieve. Yeah, and they were all at the premiere of the film and that was an amazing thing. 
I, I don't want to give too much about the film away, but all, everyone was there and able to sort of stand up and feel like part of some sort of bigger family. And um, I think it's important to talk about money, Darren, because like money is like something that's often hidden away and brushed under the carpet. But actually, we know that like is part of what keeps structures in place as they are. But with the making of this film, which wasn't a very big budget film, documentaries aren't, but um, this budget, everyone had access to be able to see exactly where every penny was being spent. And everyone involved with the film was paid a flat fee, the exact same amount. And I think that that's really important because historically, the where documentary comes from, they say, you need journalistic integrity. And so you can't pay people for being involved with anything, but you pay people who, um, you know, a camera people or whatever, who are the workers, but you don't pay th those sort, those sorts of jobs you pay, but you don't pay people for giving their time, for giving their life. You always thought that was a bizarre convention. Uh, and, 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 uh, it's good to see that being challenged because it's, it's, it's kind of weird that, the only person who can't profit in any way off of being the subject of a film is the person who has the least money and who's offered the most of themselves in it. It's a kind of, it's a strange thing. Yeah. Who I, then has to like live that in the public eye forever, you know, for the rest of their time, potentially. I also think it's about, um, well, I'd never been a director before um, coming in um, and there was this space where I get to learn, I get to use equipment if I want to. Um, I get to have these discussions about the places that I, I didn't know anything about post-production, -produ anything like that. Um, and so for the first time, and it's going to carry on as well, where I get to be this, this director. Um, and it just feels like a really surreal experience because I don't know, grow, you know, growing up on a council estate and all of that. Um, we, I worked my way through it, became a, an academic too, just like you, uh, where people are like, uh, what do, so what do you do? I'm an, I'm a lecturer. Oh, really? Like, why are you shocked by that? Cause of the way that I speak and, um, yeah, it's just sort of navigating through that system, sitting in, in rooms full of people who speak really well. And you've always got this anxiety and although now, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm maybe not working class anymore. Now I'm a lecturer. Um, I'm not sure about that, but it's just within you. Like, you know, Dee Hunter, who uh, who wrote um, Chav Solidarity. No, no. There's something that he writes about. It's just, you just carry with it with you. It's in your bones, no matter what you become and what you do. It's something that's inside. You know what I mean? I don't think that, that idea leaves you. There's that element of imposter syndrome, but it's also that... I don't know, there's a, because you're used to the whole systemic violence and systemic oppression that you face as a working class person, especially come for the, the lower working class, if you're going to look at it through that lens, or the underclass, as, as people tend to call it, which I, I tend to dislike as a term, but um, either there's that element where you've got your back up always. One of the things I found interesting with that position was, especially when Darren was talking about um, language and class, I've found in academia one of the big um, well one of the big obstacles what I had to face and overcome essentially was the questioning you tend to get in academia so when you're explaining your work to somebody somebody's been because we, we, we're used to it I mean we, we have we because we don't have a lot of material possessions to keep older what we tend to do is we value our word we value our pride so much so when someone's over questioning you you tend to get your back up you're like why is this person keep asking me similar questions and you start getting annoyed about it. So this is, for me, this was quite a big obstacle I faced in, in that. Um, and as you've mentioned there, it's, it's that kind of never leaves you, but you do, you do tend to overcome it as the, as the time goes on, I feel. Give us a bit of insight just into your trajectory, uh, well, through life and uh, eventually ending up where you're at now, where you're uh, you're launching this piece of research, the history of trauma and emotions in the mother capital of Europe, which is a kind of examination of... Uh, youth culture and working class areas in the southwest of Scotland. Uh, so my my own story, um, quite similar to yours, a bit um, dysfunctional, you might say. So my mum, she's a, a recovering alcoholic now. She was uh, quite over all over the place when I was growing up. Uh, my stepdad, uh, he was a, a drug addict as well. Uh, he's now in recovery as well. So they're pivotal to him. 
but growing up, that wasn't really my life as a result. So I grew up with my gran and granda. Um, I got kicked out of my two schools. So first from Bellaston Academy and then Lourdes Secondary. So I was facing, statistically, facing this whole social isolation, alienation. Tried to get a couple of jobs when I was um, growing up. Before I knew it, I was selling sweeties, ecstasy, um, selling green and well, more harsh back then uh, when I was younger. And then I uh, started finding myself getting in trouble with the police. But the one thing that, that got me away for the world, well, for, away for Glasgow, um, it was joining the army. So I was supposed to be going up at court. Uh, 15 and 9 months I tried to join the army, but I had a court case pending. And then when I went up to the court, they says, well, what's happening? So the lawyer says to them, well, he's better join the army, he's got to get away for Glasgow. So that's what I did. Um, they says, well, if you get called back up here again, you will be recalled on your old cases. Um, well, so it was a deferred sentence. So they says, we'll recall any old sentences back up and charge you double, basically. Um, so I got away, joined the army, and it was in the army that uh, seems strange, but that's where I kind of developed this kind of class consciousness because you're seeing the impacts of imperialism and seeing the impacts of the horrors that the, the army are causing across the world, like firsthand. And a lot of people say, ah, oh, because I consider myself as a socialist now, quite, quite hardcore. Um, but a lot of people see think that is alien, but really they don't really understand the material conditions which get you to join the army. So in Glasgow, at the time when I joined, statistically you were more likely to be murdered on the street as a youth than you were by joining the army. So it was that element that I go to jail. Um, they are keep doing what I'm doing in the street, maybe end up murdered or they get away from it. And I remember my gran, who was like the most pivotal figure in my, my life. Um, she was the person I really looked up to, and I know she was wanting me to, to get away from it all. So that was the route I took. Um, then ended up when I'd... I, there was a, it was a situation in Kenya where I'd been working in this orphanage, and uh, there was a, a wee baby that was there. It was only about a few months old, and we were in helping out, and this wee baby had a big like crush in its, in its skull. And I remember thinking, I was like, why, why is this baby in this, in this room? Why is it not a hospital? And they're like, well, we can't take it to a hospital. What a hospital? It was the first time it kind of dawned on me that I knew poverty existed and I'd seen it, but it wasn't quite the impact of this kind of poverty. This was like life or death poverty rather than the poverty we live. We, we live, obviously, relative poverty, but that stuff there, that, that kind of awoke something in me. Um, and from there, I started reading theory. Started initially started off with Chomsky, Klein, um, then moved on to Marxism. Started reading that. Supposed to go offshore um, when I came with the army. My wee grand was nowhere as well, though. Um, so I ended up, I'd said, I'll just work in a, a call centre then just to tide me by. Um, working for Scottish Power for a while, that was a good, a bit an eye opener as well. You squeezed a lot of life in. I mean, <laughs> I can't think of somebody that I've met who has authenticated themselves quite as efficiently as a working class person in terms of just all of the life experience that you're talking about. You move for the criminal justice system yeah. into the army. You move for the army into a call centre. Right. Uh, in the middle of that, you start getting into marks. And it's just like, I mean, honestly, it's like if you were to sit down and do some sort of quota in terms of, Say somebody was trying to do a diversity hire. Do you know what I mean? Uh, It'd be like tick, 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 ticking all the boxes. Can I just ask you uh, to to kind of ju jump forward a wee bit? So we came into proper contact when um, your uh, the news had reported about your research, and I was coming from a place of deep scepticism, partly because of the way it was reported. So actually, my first response to the announcement of of uh, Gavin's research was this a load of shite this has been done before i didn't read it i was just it was it was a bit of media literacy on my part and plus normally it's like a high percentage that you're actually right when you make that assumption when you see this kind of stuff but he 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 to his credit he, he challenged me on that and then explained and elaborated on it in a bit and, and 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 then actually when i read the thing and then actually just by the way that you challenged me that kind of uh that sort of brought a bit more respect to the equation as well, because the way that you push back, I was like, ah, right, okay, no, that seems like he's the real deal. And then, uh, 
but there was then there was a lot of attention, wasn't there, on the on the work and 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 part of the issue was was perhaps in the media framing of it. So can you talk us to about what the research is, how it was reported, and and sometimes what the the the, the relationship between these two things can be. So I well, firstly, one of the reasons why I was I was happy to come on this was when I'd responded to you and your response as well as you say that respect thing, and I found that quite um, honourable, and it's very rare that somebody will go well. Maybe I got it wrong there, but she didn't. I thought, I, as I said, that was a lot of respect for that for you. Um, in terms of my research, so I'm looking at. So as we know, Glasgow in 2005 was the murder capital of Europe after a. World Health Organization um, had deemed us, as I say, following a UN report. Historically, though, Glasgow has been the murder capital of Europe, the sick man of Europe, the poor man of Europe. I mean, we've even got our own fucking Glasgow effect. I mean, what is that? So in the mid-90s, early 2000s, we start seeing this new moral panic. And the moral panic is the rise of Ned culture. Glasgow's got a crime rate three times greater than London. Younger the size, it's, it's incredible. Why is it called Ned culture? Because I'd never heard of this before. Well, there is a there's a lot of different theories behind where Ned culture or the, the term Ned comes from, and people say Ned Kelly. People say um, it's something to do with the Teddy Boys, Neddies, etc. This, in my opinion, is wrong. Um, I, I've traced the word back to the early nineteen twenties. It goes that far back and it's found mainly among the horse racing, illegal gambling, things like that. Um, there's, a, there's an article I'm going to write on this as well, the etymology of the word, but it's related to hooliganism, basically, in this document, 1920s. It's our word for um, chav, basically. Uh, there is cultural, small cultural differences, I would say. However, the systemic oppression, the alienation they face as a youth, how they express themselves might be slightly different as well, but generally, I it's a, a youth... What the what the common denominator is is the extreme poverty and also the moral panics which they face when we're facing a recession or something like that. Um, so I'm looking at through the material conditions, the history, trying to figure out what how this subculture emerges, how the subculture then exists, how the people within this subculture treat one another, how they respond to this systemic violence and ultimately social murder, which is a concept created by Engels, but came up. Um, quite recently again after Grenfell and things like that. So I saw this responses. So a lot of subculture analysis tends to focus on background. No, not even so much background anymore because that's done away with because there's no such thing as class according to some of the authors. Um, there's the foreground where this is just relationships between individuals. But I'm giving the background um, dialectical material um, analysis um, and historical obviously given that approach. Um, so it's just also as STV have written. Um, I don't know if you need to block it because I've mentioned them. No, but, it's fine. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. I know people over there. If they've got any issues, they can feel free to contact me directly. But they put giving them a voice, and that was a sensationalism. But that I didn't spoke about because although it is providing a voice for them, I mean, it's the whole point of understanding a culture, you need to speak to people who've lived the culture in the first place. What's interesting though is this culture is seen as non-existent until it's time for mockery or shame, disdain or fear. Because if you look at Still Game, Chewing the Fat, um, even even just general, there was a book called Ned World that was published in um, 2005, which is obviously quite time-specific for when my research is as well, Murder Capital Europe and things, published in Edinburgh, funnily enough. Um, but this book was totally anti-working class, it was misogynist, it just totally shamed everything about the youth mm. in this period. And as I say, this culture is something that's been denied. If you look at academia, there's not much talk about NEDs at all. I was going to ask you about that. Like, what is your view in terms of the body of, of research that currently exists, the quality and the quantity of it, in terms of looking at this very specific aspect of, of youth culture and where it intersects with, with class? So right now, um, well, there was, a, there was a study conducted by a guy called Robert Young for Glasgow University, I'm sure he was, um, and it said, can middle-class people be Neds? His view was that they could be, and he used this, as I say, this whole foreground um, where he was just asking individuals, did they identify as a Ned, which is self-ID, which some people, I, it works in some places. However, if you're just basing it on self-ID in a terms of plain dress-up, 
what it removes in is a systemic oppression, as I say, the alienation, the isolation that you face. If you're middle class, you're less likely to get excluded from school. As soon as you become excluded from school, you are then removed from society. And Akala talked about that quite recently, well, a wee while ago. Um, you become part of that. You're, you're removed from society. You're on the periphery of society from that. And it's very hard to break back in again. But when you're removed, if we're looking at through that lens, that's what creates this idea of the underclass. And it's not an underclass, I, I disagree with the term. I think it's working class. But I think it's people who really struggle to break back in to the general cycle of what working class is. Um, so the, the, the other literature that I've looked at was um, Samantha Pokel, who's a, a Canadian um, author who done this work. And she, hers was really good, but it focused more on aesthetics, dressing up. And she's kind of seen it as through a, a lens of race, where they misperform in race, where they misperform in um, sort of looking at, not because she came from Canada, she's trying to show on, obviously, preconceived notions about race that she's developed over time into mm -hmm. this culture in Glasgow at the time. Um, and she says maybe there was a, an element of that. People didn't like how they were performing as white working class when they were dressing closer to what working uh, black working class looked like at that period of time. Um, the other, it's very difficult to actually find anything that mentions the term NEDs or NED culture. Yeah. I think that's obviously partly to do with the, the, the derogatoriness of the term, the, the negative aspect of it whereas people are scared to approach it. So we tend to see focused on youth street gangs, um, which Alistair Fraser's work is probably one of the best in that as well. Um, I, I really enjoyed his work in terms of space and place and habitus and people in the local community making sense of the, the locality. What do you um, think people misunderstand about it? Because, I, first of all, I remember being part of this, uh, not part of it, I remember bearing witness to this moral panic because that's when I first started getting my first jobs in media. Oh. So I went on a journey where suddenly I was uh, getting invited into the BBC to present radio shows and started noticing all of those awkward interactions that you start having uh, with middle class people. I was going out around the country interviewing people. I couldn't get anyone to identify themselves as a Ned and I spoke to hundreds of young people and then one time I was in Falkirk uh, and we were in a car park where all of the young people would come with our like souped up, dubbed out cars, right? And they're all just driving around this car park. They're all congregating, you know, it's like a pilgrimage almost in terms of if you look at through the lens of social connection rather than hooliganism. And the only person who identified themselves as an Ed was one of the guys driving a car. I just went over to the car. I was like, would you identify yourself as an Ed? Ah, he says, and I was like, why? And he's like, because I'm a fucking bam. And then he just revved up his car <laughs> and just drove away. <laughs> no, the, the, the thing that I noticed was I was on this parallel journey when I was thinking, all right, I'm getting an opportunity. I must be talented. I must have some sort of merit in this dynamic. But the minute that I started pitching the BBC, anything that fell without the scope of Ned culture, antisocial behavior, uh, then uh, there would there'd be no interest. I was wanting to go out and do programs about the rollerblading culture, about graffiti, looking at all these things through a different lens, less about vandalism, less about violence, more focus on what drives a graffiti writer to want to find the, a spot in a high building that can be seen from, from, from hundreds of yards around and risk their life and risk their liberty just to tag up their name on a thing. What drives a person to do that? And they were just not interested. And then the penny dropped eventually when I, what I realized was Neds don't identify themselves as Neds. The Neds a label that they apply to someone else. And the BBC thought I was a Ned and that's why I was getting these jobs because they thought here's a Ned who talks well. And it was like a penny drop moment for me where I was like, mm, I've got the measure of these cunts now wow. because I understand how they see me and this means I have an advantage in every single interaction I have with them because I can play up to that. All the while going in with my own agenda, all the while going in with my own understanding of what they don't understand. And it was a real moment for me to kind of have that switch on. And I guess you must have had similar experiences yourselves, whether it be in, um, uh, uh, you're obviously an artist, you're an educator. So these are both kind of areas where uh, there's dominance of the middle class voice, middle class conventions, the middle class gaze. And so uh, I wonder maybe if you could touch on some of that for us. 
Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about um, reading about Marx and all those books that you were reading, and I remember getting to um, uni and everyone was talking about Karl Marx. And I was like, I don't even know who this guy is. And I picked up a book, um, I picked up a few books. I was like, I don't understand what any of this Mm. says. Um, And everyone was in these these seminar rooms talking about it. and then also, I remember sitting down in a park with all of my new friends, and my mum had uh, collected her methadone in the clinic near the university in New Cross. And um, <clears throat> I just remember saying, I found out that someone went to a private school, and he had tattoos and lived in a squat, and I was just really shocked. I, was, I, I couldn't hear the posh accents for some reason. I blocked them out. Um and then I asked everyone around, did you, did you, did you? Everyone said yes. And I went, did you, did you, did you think I went to private school? And they said no. And there was just a sudden realisation that yeah. although I got it to the place where I wanted to be, um, I didn't fit in. Um, but, I, and it was a real, it, you talk about reading being an endurance test. Mm. And I felt that and I still feel that um, and just, when I can't soak in information, I get this anxiety of, um, you know, coming from the place that I came from, which was, a, I mean, it wasn't a really like rough council estate. It was a lovely one. It had blossom on the trees and everyone was together and it, it was it was a nice place to be. Um, but still, I wouldn't invite any of my school friends there because there was this kind of embarrassment that I had a dirty couch yeah. and a, a piss-smelling piss lift. It know? just puts me in mind of a time when uh, I was out working on a TV uh, series, my first TV series. And, I, and I'm not, I, any work I've ever done, I'm never, I have never been in the habit of claiming back expenses, right? For whatever reason, maybe it's because I had an issue around the bureaucracy of it and I was just stressed out by the idea of filling out the forms. Uh, or maybe it was because I was thinking I'm getting paid a decent amount of money for the work that I'm doing and I feel like it would be a bit entitled of me to go back and say I want my mo- some money back for the cost of doing this work. It's ingrained. It's like you don't want to be seen as a charity case as well. Yeah. I get that. Like, I, and, and I remember one time just thinking uh, everyone and the team, every time they bought anything, can I get a receipt? And can I get a receipt? And the receipts were all getting filed in their little baggie and the money was all getting counted out and then they would get reimbursed. And I remember just thinking, man, I've spent about 70 quid on caramel shortbread the whole time I've been doing this project. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I wonder if I'm due, you know, a wee bung. And and then it wasn't it wasn't until I got my first tax bill and from from after the the, the the success that I'd had. And then I realized why people keep the receipts because they're self-employed and this is a way to reduce the tax bill. And so it was like basic financial literacy. And so this, this was what was really illuminated for me was not that they were keeping receipts. It was the fact that I had no idea that this is how you navigate having a bit more money. And partly that un- lack of understanding is why people whose income suddenly goes up when they come from poverty. Their their consumer habits are hardwired. How they understand money is hardwired. They have an understanding of money that is shaped by not having money. It burns a hole in your pocket. It comes and goes, so you don't, you just need it to get you through the next day or the next week. And then that is why we don't accumulate any wealth, partly because any money that we do have, we don't have an investment mentality in it, not to go and turn into a finance bro. But I just mean, I just mean that James English back, yeah. it was a wake up call for me because I was like, this is partly why they, this is partly why they do better because they have this understanding of money that is fundamentally different because it's based on having enough to conserve some, to save some, to think long term about it. Yeah. And it was just like, wow, the cultural divergences were so pronounced in academia what are the most obvious cultural divergences that you've kind of come up against um probably the one that we'd we'd spoke about so this whole debating culture they're used to having this like sort of same level playing field where your knowledge is your your power that's your back forwards they have these debates and they don't get uptight about them because it's, it's seen as like a kind of game for them whereas for us because we've been so long marginalised and um, denied access almost to these sort of areas 
we've never really been trained how to debate. We've never really been trained how to even articulate ourselves. I think that's why we see so often working class people getting annoyed and getting ag- agitated with things when people do over question them because no, always do we have the language there at our disposal to actually make that argument, um, even though we know what we're trying to say. So I think that that's, that's been the biggest culture shock. But in fairness, I mean, my universities, I've Glasgow Caledonian University to Strathclyde as well. All my lecturers were really supportive of me, um, every one of them, even my supervisors, Una Walsh and Fiona Skillen, uh, Maureen Taylor, they've all been really supportive. They, they, they know that I'm invested in my, my work, they know that I'm willing just to batter on with it and they're leaving me that kind of freedom. So they've got a confidence in me to go and do that. Um, one thing that you'd mentioned though was the, the reading. What what I found quite interesting with university especially was the... Uh, you tend to learn the theory of individuals before you learn how to pronounce their names. So like Bourdieu, Foucault. When I when I first picked up their books, I was calling them Bourdieu. Yeah, yeah, Foucault, yeah. Oh, Foucault. And that and uh, that a couple of times I even even stoicism and I was looking at it as like stoicism. And yeah. And I was saying these sort of things and they you become the middle of the night realizing. Oh shit! I've been saying that wrong this whole time. I always when it's when people start talking about it, you're like, "Is that the same person I've been talking about?" <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, you feel yeah. like that that's when the reality kicks in because this is where you've obviously had to move forward yourself because you've not had that level of training, so you've needed to educate yourself in that level. So it's it's interesting. You carry this thing where you think you're stupid. So yeah. you're being more, I think, because some... in middle class environments and upper class, you know, in school systems. You have debating lessons, you have debating societies. Less students. I've got the opposite thing where, and this isn't something to be proud of, but I feel like I've been trained to have debates and conversations a little bit like some people can play tennis. I just know how to hit the ball. Doesn't mean that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, it's just I know how to sound like I know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, and having the, acquired the correct speech style and the vocal anatomy all developing in such a way to produce that sound, those sounds that we associate with trustworthiness, with knowledge, with insight. Um, and, and, and one of the things that I have learned to deal with but was a very big bone of contention for me culturally was as I started to move in these more middle-class domains and get into conflicts, verbal disagreements. Um, what I found was that they set the parameter that there's no violence allowed, right? Yeah. Now that's important, right? That there's no violence allowed. But I come from a culture where a certain type of tone or a certain type of comment justifies retribution, yeah. right? And so what where they show their power is in their passive aggression because they can compel you to speak like them. They can compel you to adopt the conversational conventions, the parameters, uh, what, what is allowed to be discussed, what isn't, what, what puts the discussion out of bounds. And they can also provoke you verbally um, by their tone, by their subject, by the uh, what's implicit in what they're saying. But you can never go, You've crossed a line there. If you if you if you if you go any further, I'm gonna change the paradigm that we're in and you're gonna experience what it's like in my culture when you cross a line. Because there's no police coming to intervene here, there's no teacher coming to intervene, there's no helicopter parent coming in to mediate. It's just me and you. And if you say that again, I'm gonna knock you out. I, I noticed <laughs> you know, that, like <laughs> I noticed that also with the swearing. So for most people, I mean, you speak to anybody, most people swear. But when you <laughs> swear in a certain context, they'll use that against you because they're saying, oh, you swear, and it's as if they've won the argument. But this goes back to the working class sometimes not being able to articulate themselves. Mm. So they've got that aggression and they'll swear. Or in Glasgow especially, I mean, we use swear words as fucking commas sometimes. So it's part of your language almost. And it's difficult in friendships as well because you do lose your shit and they're used to dealing things in different ways and it's difficult in the the film team. I lost my shit a few times. Um, I've even had to say, like, I'm really sorry, I am probably going to lose it today because I'm in this place and I'm swearing and being... I mean, it's emotional stuff that I've been talking about. Um, Yeah. But you've had to be able to deal with that in a different way. Mm. I've had to, yeah, learn sort of to absorb it and not be too reactive to it. But 
sometimes Lisa, Lisa gets really angry as a response and that's not an emotion that I'm used to sort of being confronted by. Or passionate. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah. what it might be, pa- passion. But we found a way, you know, like a lot of what's worked between us is a commitment to this relationship. We've kept, we never have fallen out. We haven't allowed ourselves to fall out. But do you know why as well is because um, I don't know about you, but the passion comes and you're like, whatever it is that you're saying, but then you're like, do you want a cup of tea? Do you want to, there's no like lingering on it. It's just like, here's the expression and I'm not holding on to that. I've had that so many times, like, um, and uh, just when you were talking about anger there and you were saying anger and you were saying passion, it just put me in mind of what you were saying as well. I remember years ago, um, we talked briefly about it yesterday. Years ago, I got involved in a, a, a kind of bit of a controversy on Scottish political Twitter around an article I had written and then uh, more, more controversy because of uh, the subject matter of it. It was about gender-based violence. We had made a film about it. Then people went trawling through the filmmaker who I'd employed. They went trawling through his Facebook. And then he had apparently shared the opinions of a certain men's rights activist and all that. It was just an absolute (laughs) nightmare scenario, right, that you could not have foreseen. And I had no experience of the social media world. I had only experience of it, of getting up and using it as as a platform to speak into. So I'd never felt pushback. And the pushback was asymmetric. I couldn't deal with it. But at the core of it was this cultural divergence where every time I tried to explain myself, I was being interpreted as aggressive. Yeah. Now, this includes me uploading v- footage of myself, just completely exasperated. My son had just been born. I was just learning to be a dad. I didn't have a clue what was going on in my life. And I was basically getting just completely, people trying to get me the sack and all of this stuff. And I remember uploading a video, basically pleading with people, please understand, I came to this with good intentions. I didn't know all of the different language rules that have been adopted in communities that I'm not part of. I hold my hands up, I'm sorry. And then it gets reported in the paper, Darren McGarvey, also known as rapper Loki, recovering addict. You know, publish, publish angry video. Do you know what I mean? And you realise if you play in their paradigm, then you can't win. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If, if it comes into confrontation, if you play in that paradigm, you can't win, whether you're in front of a judge, whether you're in front of a cop, whether you're in front of a teacher. So it's it's really difficult to navigate when you're not on an equal footing because the middle class passive aggression is brutal. It's delivered with kindness. It's delivered with a smile, but there's always underscoring it. Uh, you understand though, you know, you're in here, you're in our little sandbox, but you understand like I can hit the kill switch and you're out of university, you're out of your career, you're out, you know, and it's quite, it's it's quite, it's quite, I find it quite frustrating sometimes. I think that's um, a good point you say there as well. One wee small mistake you'll know yourself is getting into academia and in this working class culture. I've had to like remove myself a lot of my pals what I grew up with. As a result of that, because all it would take was one night out, and then you're one mistake by one of them, and you're bracketed in with it, and you're then you're, you're removed by that sort of environment. You've you've worked so hard to get yourself into, I so that I feel that there's there's extra pressure on it in that sense because you do need to move beyond that. What what about writing? Because we're we're talking about debating, um, and I was thinking about going into prison doing some workshops with my partner at the times. Um, yeah, we went, we were doing workshops going in uh, to men's prisons and saying, you know, let's write about your story. Here's some of our writing. And a lot of them just didn't even, they didn't want to because it was uncool to write and show your feelings. Um, if they wrote a sentence, brilliant. At the end of it, everyone was writing and tapping each other on the back and, um, but there was a real thing about writing. I said, if you write, you can chuck it on the in the bin and no one has to read it. Um, you could decide you want someone else to read it out. I just found that when I started writing, there was a different kind of freedom that I found, although I didn't really know about punctuation because well, I don't, I, I just never really got into it. Um, I was able I like to like that just... idea of just... <laughs> punctuation can just be a thing that you sort of just bypass on the process of learning to write because it's so true we can get caught up in sweating the small stuff but like just using language as a vessel to creativity 
you know, you obviously just, it, it, it was natural to you once you sort of discovered it. Yeah, and I think something to do with grief and loss and getting this stuff out is different to writing in reflection and you start to understand and research. Um, there's all these different voices that you can use and you're, you think, wow, I've come so far being able to adapt to these different voices um, and just helping other people to be able to do that that same thing because... You know, our film wouldn't have happened if I didn't start writing. You look at the images and you go, well, what is this about? I don't want to talk because when I talk, I, I sometimes get anxious and I haven't had enough time to think it through. When you write, it, it comes and you can sit with it and you can edit it and you can be careful. And um, if I'm if I'm having a dispute with someone in life, I'm one of those that will text endlessly because <laughs> uh, and they say, actually, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it in that way. We will talk this through. And I say, but that is the kind of communication that I find difficult. Why is it that we always have to talk? Because I feel like I can have this space where I can say stuff through writing and it's a lot easier for me. Yeah, the, the number one question that I get from from people uh, from, from more working class or disadvantaged backgrounds is how do they overcome a certain hurdle to pursue their creativity? Uh, whatever that might be. So it might be in academia, it might be in music, it might be in uh, literature of some sort. And and without fail, always the issue seems to be that partly due to our education system uh, and partly due to following the highly revised stories of successful people who forget all the help they had and what a nightmare it is to do basic projects and all the different help that you need, is, is that people who come from backgrounds where maybe reading skills weren't acquired early in life and so there is more effort involved or their uh, knowledge of literature isn't as extensive so they don't feel as comfortable in those conversations that occur. It's because a process has been modelled to them as the process, the only way to proceed with your art form and that is uh, indicative of a more affluent lifestyle where there are certain things that can be taken for granted in the picture and so the thing that I always try to convey to them first of all by just being honest about my own absolutely chaotic binfire process which is I begin writing a book by just following instinct there's no outline there's no chapter plan I just look out into the world and I go what am I drawn to? And if it's Grenfell, I get on the train and I go down there and I meet Loki and we go around Lancaster West Estate and he describes people picking polystyrene out of their hair. He takes me past the house of the person who he believed was responsible for a lot of the corruption. They don't live there anymore, but the house hasn't been touched. A very interesting dynamic in the community. If I feel like I want to go to Margate, a Brexit lightning rod, and I want to understand what is the roots of this anti-immigration sentiment that I don't understand. So I go there, I meet Aya, and she's a local. She takes me around the whole community. Uh, we go into like these terrible conditions where landlords are just building walls in front of refugees' houses so that no one has to see them. Uh, there's dangerous, terrible conditions. And then I go home, I write all this up, and it just sits in a, it just sits there for like two years until the theme of what I'm actually working on starts to emerge. Now, if you were to, if, if I was to sit with a publisher and say, and explain that, they wouldn't give me the contract. No, yeah. They would but go, this is my process. I'm a nightmare. I'm an ADHD nightmare who's dealing with imposter syndrome every moment of the day. Uh, it's going to be difficult to work with me because I'm not going to send you any of the stuff I'm working on for about two years because I'm terrified <laughs> you're going to put a red line through it and tell me to get to fuck. Right. So you're going to have to learn how to work with me. Uh, otherwise, we can't work. And that's my process. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> kind of the same what we were doing. It's like, this is my life. It's still happening as we're making it. I don't know what it's going to be. Usually you'd have to pitch something, right? Um, and, and also I was just thinking about people People who tell their stories from this kind of I don't even know if I lived lived what is you it? don't like experience. that term. I like to uh, say my 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 experience the experience of my life mm -hmm. uh, or something along those lines um how do you get from telling your story um when someone's held a space for you I still find all these terminologies like held a space okay um and then you start widening that picture so it's like when you're younger and you've got all these things in front of you and it's all about you taking this uh, bit of food and all about what you're what 
what is just immediately around you how then do you go out to the street and start analyzing that and to the and to the world and and going into these council estates and going like this this confidence how does that build from your story to researching to going out there and doing it. I speak to my students art students and often the ones who are from council estates and they're from really you know really the backgrounds that give you a punch in the gut um they're not being seen and heard enough um they they are speaking from a personal narrative kind of point of view um how do you raise them up and go, this is important, but don't deal with all of your trauma all at once because you could open something up that could be quite dangerous just to put on show straight away. Yeah. And you were talking about this kind of privacy. What what are you holding back? Um, just not everyone needs to tell their story and everything straight away, right? I've been doing this for years now, getting mm -hmm. counselling and people might think that they need to have some power well, over what, their story, but when is when is the right time to do that? Uh, binging is never good, never a good might be a good thing in some cases, but I can't think what that. No, I, 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 um, it was something I did want to discuss with you, whether it was on here or in private. I suspect the conversations will continue anyway. But one of the things about the film, just before we start wrapping up, um, the film that comes through strong for me, uh, for me, is um, there is going to be a bit of a roller coaster ahead if the film does as well as I think it's going to do in terms of the amount of correspondence that you're going to start dealing with, the amount of interest and more details of your life, um, and also people who will, who will uh, uh, you, you now exist in a certain radar in a way that you didn't before, and other people will see opportunity for themselves um, uh, naturally through, through being involved with your work. Um, and, and I mean this for both of you. And so then the question is, how do you reproduce the success? Do you draw back from the reservoir of lived experience again? Do you, do you, do you offer up more details? Because um, sometimes I think subconsciously what we do when we come from a place of low self-esteem, where we don't have strong relational uh, connections in our lives, and we need uh, to be, we need constant reassurance sometimes uh, that we're okay and that we're good people as we make an assumption uh, that uh, we should just offer up everything of ourselves. And maybe if we put all the information out there, then everybody out there will have enough information to put the puzzle together so that they know that we're good people, that we're decent people, that we deserve love, that we deserve to have success. And it's tricky when you come onto the second project, I know this isn't your second project in your life as a creative person, but this is obviously a big quantum leap forward. And so the question comes then, what's next? Yeah. Uh, I know you probably won't be ready to answer that. Can I say something? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of self-care to be done in the interim. That's what I'm kind of strongly trying to suggest. Yeah, because, um, okay, so the film was made very... I hope that it was made in a way that we did it very sort of slowly with a lot of talking mm. and a lot of trying to understand what are the boundaries of like privacy and things that you want to put out there. Um, Lisa's put her life out there for years and years and years. It's something that you do as a part of processing your life and that you want to do. But I feel quite protective of Lisa right now. And um, while we're thinking about what next, I keep saying, maybe it's not going to be about your own life right now, the next thing. Even if one day you go back to doing work about your own life, because I feel like Lisa's um, a very, very talented filmmaker. And every shot that's in our film, Lisa did. There's a director behind that. That's why we're co-directors, you know, yeah. not be like I, I come from a filmmaking background, but Lisa's. Lisa's a filmmaker in her being, you know yeah, what I mean? She's just, it's not, it's just like, she's got an instinct, you know, to filmmaking and to storytelling. It's like a voice, isn't it? It's yeah. like a creative voice, whether you're a writer or whatever. Um, there's a moment in the film where she interviews, like the film continued happening while we were making it. And as a, a director, I kept thinking, should I be there with her while she's like, with a camera filming things. And then I was like, no, Lisa's got this. She's doing it in her way. So, But I feel like I want 
Lisa to do something about something else to show and prove to herself and to the world and that she can do that. But you kick back at that. Well, I think the reason is the same with the Instagram account. It started with my story, then it went on to other people's stories um, and, and me having conversations with them. Sometimes it doesn't get to the grid. Sometimes it does. Um, I don't feel like I'm done yet. And when I am, then I'm ready to move on to other people. Um, I'm just writing, writing, writing at the moment. I don't know what it is going to be. It, I don't feel like I need to stick to film. It could be a book. It could be paintings. I'm curating this series of shows for people's families in uh, addiction and artists and, and holding spaces in galleries for conversations about um you know, NACA or smart recovery, rehab discussions, what is recovery? Yeah. I'm going into these spaces and going, we need to start talking about this with these, uh, with Zelda Arts, they're supporting me. Um, so I think it's like, I don't, I, I, we use different mediums and just kind of tell, like work ourselves out through those and where if it happens again, a part of my life, then it will happen again. And if it's other people, it will come when yeah. it's ready, when it's it kind of boils up inside of you and you're gathering knowledge and then you're like, right, I'm ready to start yeah. with other people now. That's a good thing you're doing with other people as well. And same with Dan as well. So even though you're talking about yourself and you're trying to bring other people in, that's my approach I always try to do. So the old John McLean quote, don't raise, don't raise out your class, raise with your class. Yeah. But I, think, and I always think that's important. So whether it be giving a voice to people and getting them active and bringing them into the struggle and recognising their material conditions because a lot of the time they haven't got that same access to edu education, they're able to then realise, well, actually, that's my story also. I can do that, I can change this. And it brings more people in. And as I say, the more people involved in this, Instead of each one of us trying to level up, yeah, the better chance we've got as a, yeah. as a class. Definitely. This is, I'm just going to start wrapping things up, but this has been a very uh, stimulating, interesting conversation, which I knew it would be, but I feel like it just kind of organically took on its own uh, life form, which is, which is just like brilliant, a lot of fun, learned a lot. Uh, have you got anything you want to promote? Anything you want to shout out? Any any, any um, proverbs or maxims you want to dispense to the to the troops out there? It's funny, and we don't even know what to say. Oh. <laughs> we don't even know how to sell ourselves. <laughs> well, I mean, like we should say that Blue Bag Life is um, it currently in the cinemas, uh, selected cinemas across the UK, but it's going to be on BBC Storyville, and it'll be on the iPlayer. Um, and that we hope it can be a force for good. And if anyone wants to like join forces with us and make sure that the film is seen by people that might benefit from it, we particularly want to support people that are like family supporting people in, in addiction. Yeah. And, um, I'm talking a lot with AdFam, the charity that helps people, um, who have got loved ones in addiction or have lost uh, loved ones in addiction. How can we work with places that maybe don't get enough funding even to, cause I could go to them and say, really want to work with you. I want to tell everyone about you. And they'll say, well, maybe we need more funds to be able to cope with, I mean, this is a huge discuss discussion for rounding up, yeah. right. To cope with the people no, that will course. be coming to us. Um, so yeah, it's something about that and something about the film going on to other things like exhibitions and um which will be in Glasgow uh next year. Um Brilliant. Excellent. And the, 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 there's another life ahead for the film. There's a process of making it, and then you forget that there's this whole other side to the coin, whereas then you've got to take it out into the world and and and, and push it. Have you got anything you want to say before we wrap up, mate? No, yeah, just thanks for having his own. Um shout to my we on say Courtney and uh, work as a world you've nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> Very good, mate. You're coming to see me in Inverness tonight, yeah. That's it. I'm playing Eden Court the night in Inverness rolled out. Uh, that's what I'll just quickly tap uh, cap on. Um uh, I'm on tour right now, social distance between us live. Uh there are numerous new dates that have been added, Plymouth, Brighton, couple of dates in Devon for some reason, uh, which should be a good laugh. Uh, as well as Paisley and uh, numerous other places in Scotland. So you can jump on my Twitter on the pinned tweet. There's a link tree. There's information there. Uh, so come and say hello on tour. We're also taking this podcast to the Edinburgh Fringe. 
from the 12th to the 19th, we're in the Grand Hall, which is where all the greats play. Uh, I'm not including myself in that. I'm just saying it's a big step up for me to be getting into the Grand Hall the last couple of years. So please, as an audience, rise to that occasion by turning up, uh, booking those dates out in advance in your diary so that when the tickets go on sale, that then you can... Uh, then you can come and join us at the Fringe. Uh, quickly, just want to say thanks for all the support for the channel, for the podcast. It's doing really well. Very strong start. Uh, thanks to Paul Shields here at the Green Room for producing it. Uh, thanks to David Roddy at Trend Differently for just supporting us with all of the other things that you see, these assets uh, on the screen here, uh, as well as all the different aesthetic and social media tips that we need to, to keep this operation running. Uh, I hope that you'll enjoy coming alongside us on this journey as we build things out and try to create something that does grow in the usual manner you would expect, does allow us to make a living, but also retains that integrity, which is so important. And uh, on that note, I'll just say thanks very much to everybody who's joined us today. Uh, as you can see, nobody's reading off a script. This is all off the cuff. You're dealing with the real deal here, troops. All right? <laughs> From me, James English, peace out. <laughs> <laughs>